Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse, and I'm so delighted to have invited Cody Lundin back to the show. We interviewed him in 2010 to talk about survival, to talk about his books, When All Hell Breaks Loose, Stuff You Need to Survive When Disaster Strikes, and 98.6, The Art of Keeping Your Ass Alive, (laughs) How to Survive Fear, Panic, and the Biggest Outdoor Killers. But before we bring Cody on, firstly, I want you to know that he is a wonderful teacher and steward, that he has trained so many people and taught so many people, not only through his workshops and classes and through uh, college, but he has something called the Aboriginal Living Skills School in Arizona. He travels constantly to do teaching through television in a show called Dual Survival on the Discovery Channel. He is very well known and loved. He's One of the things you're going to love about him is that he is so honest and so peaceful and calm and clear. And when you talk about survival skills and being prepared and self-reliance, Cody really has a way of stewarding what that means without transmitting fear and danger and scare and fright so that people are scared to death. Most of us, like me, are living in cities today. If something happens with the grid or some major, you know, sunspot happens, it takes out electricity, we're in bad shape, most of us. And even for some of us that will be prepared, the 6.7% or around that number who are prepared are still going to be dealing with challenges. As Cody says, there's no guarantee that you will make it, but you have a better chance of making it if you're prepared. So we're welcoming him back to talk about stewardship, to talk about some things we didn't get to the first time we interviewed him. And it is a great pleasure and an honor to have this loving, kind-hearted steward, Cody Lundin. Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. (laughs) Hi, Kim. There's no pressure at all with that introduction, right? (laughs) Well, this is what could happen. (laughs) Years ago when I was a tournament tennis player, I opened a match, and and I was the server. And they said, linesman ready, players ready, play. And I go to the service line, and I open the match, and I hit. And the thing I did the best was the serve, and I hit the ball and the rim of the racket. It went three courts over. It was humiliating. There was about 200 people in the bleachers. I thought it was going to die. You will not go through that, Cody, I promise. <laughs> well, good. So, yeah, it's good to be back. Thank you for having me back on your show. <laughs> Thank you. You've been traveling so much. And how many shows have you done or how many episodes do you know approximately since we spoke? Um, that's a good question. I think it's 37 or 38 at this time. So there's been uh, quite a few. Are you tired? <laughs> I, I, I get tired thinking about it, you know, because what people don't realize potentially is it's one thing to do a show. It's very physical, and it can be dangerous, obviously. We're in um, some sketchy scenarios. What people don't factor in is the travel time, and I know that you've done international traveling, too, and it's exhausting. So it, that's, that's a, a real probably 25% of the tired factor is just, wow, We've traveled 25 hours to get here, and now we've got to perform. You know what I mean? But isn't it when you're out there, too? I mean, it's only performing because there's cameras, but aren't you just being yourself and doing what you're doing naturally anyway? I mean, I am, but it's a TV show. And television production, that word's there for a reason. Just like you have the engineer, and you're in a studio, and you have a headset on or whatever, we're not just hanging out next to a pool you know, having a chat here. There's a lot of technology that goes in, as you know, to media. So I've been involved with that for a long time. I mean, before we had our original interview. So, yes, I can be myself, and that's what I'm supposed to do, is is be myself. But there's a lot of other factors to making a television show that, of course, are unseen by the viewer, and a lot of other laws, like, oh, we just found out that this entire country has a fire ban so I have to carry a dead eel on my back and dry it out with the sun because if we make a fire, we go to jail in New Zealand, for example. So there's a lot of stuff. The helicopter can't come. Or the helicopter's too expensive or, you know, the equipment's down. That factors into any sort of production on TV and, frankly, probably radio, too, that really kind of makes for an interesting dynamic slash let's pull our hair out situation. <laughs> 
<laughs> do you travel with family ever? No. Um, do you mean in my private life? Well, I mean, I mean, when you're on production like this, because you no. can be away for a long time. Yeah, long time, and that's the way it is in, in this business. But no, it's not recommended, and it's not really. I wouldn't. I won't say it's not allowed, but it's not really uh, recommended, and the insurance doesn't cover it, and blah blah blah. You know. So and frankly. <laughs> Would you want to take your sweetie to be eaten by leeches in a jungle? We're not exactly doing a show on the best beaches in the world. That's you know? true, Cody. That's true. That would be really verklempt and improper of you to do that. Yes. Uh, I have a couple of questions for you, and I didn't get a chance to ask you this the last time, but I was thinking, I wonder if Cody has ever confronted a bear. I mean, have you seen a bear out where you are? I, yeah, I, I, mean, I had a vision of a bear looking at you, and I thought, oh, no, I better talk to him. <laughs> no, I've seen a few a few bears. They're all here in Arizona, and the biggest one I can remember was the bear's butt as it was running away from us. So I've never had a confrontation. A couple in Canada, but really, they were black bears, and uh, they were doing okay. They weren't, you know, diseased or starving or whatever, so they pretty much left us alone and hightail the other direction. But, yes, we do have many bears here in Arizona. And, yes, I have seen them and mountain lion and other stuff um, in my field courses. you ever get scared? Of of the nature? Well, of just, just, just that life out there that, you know, if you're seeing a mountain lion, the mountain lion sees you. I mean, there's still this, there is really an X factor, too, which is you can be as yeah. calm as possible and still the mountain lion sees you and you look like a good meal. No, I, I know, but there's a lot of mythology regarding the animals out there that really is not a big part of my teaching because that's not what's going to take you out. But just like you're addressing to me, we try to alleviate those fears as quickly as possible to get onto the real killers in an outdoor survival situation. But but stuff happens, right? So, you know, I mean, yeah, you can have a, a, a dysfunctional mountain lion Whatever I've had people that have I, that have been friends of mine <clears throat> that have been in confrontations with that, but compared to like dying of hypo or hyperthermia, core body temperature, which we talked about in detail a few years ago, it's like you might as well win the lottery, you know. So really, um, we are out in wilderness. That's what my courses do. Um, there's always risks inherent in that. I state that up front on paper, verbally, etc. But my job as a survival instructor is to kind of minimize the BS and get on to the real silent killers, the, the unromantic ones, the ones that don't make very good television, and the ones that frankly kill the vast majority of people in North America and beyond. Can we talk a little bit about the fact that you have said in your books that it's really recommended that if someone's out there on the land that they try to get three gallons of water in them a day. But do people carry water, that much water with them? And how do most people that are out on the land get that amount of water in them when they're losing it, walking in the sun or they're sweating it out and breathing it out? Yeah, I don't remember too many details about our interview, but I know that I would say that. And what I mean by that, to put a caveat on that, is desert survival. So what I meant by that is, let's say that you were going to go out into the Mojave, right, which is in your state, you know, the Mojave, De Mojave Desert, Southern California. I would recommend that you had three gallons per person per day to go out there and recreate. Clearly, you're going to be in a four-wheel drive or some other vehicle. And if you're trekking through country... Um, then I recommend you know where the water is in water tanks, springs, or have stashes like some of my friends do that do cross-country hiking. So that's what I mean by that. Because when you get into water loss and human physiology, there's a lot of factors that play into that. And then there's the water loss, like you've mentioned, you know, through the urine, through bowel movements, through breathing, through perspiration, through ins insensible perspiration. But as far as that amount of water, that would be a very, very hot situation and or doing some really heavy-duty work, you know, like you're bombing through the desert, you're hiking, you're, you're on a time schedule, so you're hiking in the noonday sun, all the things you really shouldn't do in a survival situation. So that's probably where that three gallons per person per day 
comes from. Now, keep in mind that Maricopa County Sheriff here in Arizona, I have all the old brochures they <clears throat> excuse me they used to hand out on desert survival years ago, and the recommendation was a gallon of water per person per day. And it's been proven through autopsies, frankly, that someone can lose a gallon of water a sweat in an hour. So clearly that's not going to cut it, four quarts to a gallon, et cetera. So I upped the ante. And I've seen it over the years, Kim, of, of my students in the desert on a controlled course. The vehicle's right there. They're there on a skills course, not so much an adventure course where I'm hiking them, you know, until they drop, so to speak. But they blow through a lot of water. I have the five-gallon jerry cans, and I catalog how much each student is drunk. And if they're drinking and they're peeing clear, if you remember our pee conversation. Of course. Who could forget a such ago. a thing? Exactly. <laughs> um, then the, we handled poop on, like nobody I've ever heard. Our oh, conversation yeah. about poop was priceless, priceless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but but they, they blow through a lot of water, you know. And so I've cataloged us out, and I've done this a lot of years, and that's my recommendation, and then I add, of course, a percentage. You know, if you don't want to, you know, if the person uses metabolically two gallons of water for X, Y, and Z, then, of course, I'm going to recommend three because I don't want you to be just hanging there because you might run across someone else who had their head up you know where, and you should be able to give a little bit. And we could talk about that with the whole barter society, etc. You don't just want to have enough because enough is just survival only for you. If you just have enough, there's no nothing you can give. There's no extra. And that's really kind of unacceptable for someone who has a preparation mindset. One of the things that you talk about that I really, really like is you talk about core body temperature and how little you have to lose to be in danger. I want to bring that back one more time for the audience because it's a big deal. It's the key to a lot of why people die. Talk about it. Sure. Um, let's, let's do a little quiz. Okay, there's two ways that Kim's body can either gain or lose heat. Those are the two variations on different sides of the spectrum. They both start with a letter H, and so what does the hypothermia mean? Do you remember? Hi- well, hypothermia means that you're becoming cold. Correct. To, to okay, you, and you're, so you're, Kim- you're getting so cold that you're in a danger zone. You are, and that danger zone's variable. So your core body temperature, give or take, is 98.6 degrees. That's why I called my first book that. It's not a radio station like the publisher was worried about. It's core body temperature. So your core body temperature is 98.6, and if you deviate in a hypothermic situation, in other words, you're outside or wherever, or in your living room and the grid breaks down, whatnot, and the temperatures go down in your living room, your core body temperature can drop. And just a few degrees, and we have a problem, just a degree or two, and you start to shiver. And then it gets worse from there on out. It's probably easier to understand if we talk about hyperthermia, and that's Kim in the desert, and she's too hot. The cookies are too hot on the inside. The core is what we're talking about, not skin temperature. And everyone that your listener, uh, this listener to the show, has probably had a fever before. And you know that the average fevers is 100, 101. Well, that's three or four degrees off from 98.6. So it doesn't take a heck of a lot of temperature variation where you're in bed feeling like you know what. So that's how little it takes. The good thing, if there is a good thing about exposure, and that's what the media calls it, whether it's hypo or hyper, is the body has a lot of bells and whistles and warning signals to let Kim know that her core is getting uncomfortable, whether it's too cold or too hot. And you need to know those signs and symptoms. And we mentioned one, which would be shivering, which some people don't. There's a disease out there, I forget the name, where people don't shiver. I've met two of them. They live in Phoenix. You can understand why. So you're not just going (laughs) to die of hypothermia or hyperthermia right off the bat. The body will give you a series physiologically and psychologically, a series of, Kim, Kim, you better get warm, you better get warm, you better get warm. And then if you ignore that, if you ignore those signs and symptoms, then yes, you can succumb and die of exposure or hypo and hyperthermia. And as unromantic as that is, because they are fairly silent killers, uh, there's not a lot of drama and glam, you know, and repeats and slow motion action when it comes to dying of these things. They are the biggest killers, period. And, and, and something as simple as you having the right clothing on, 
or knowing about microhabitats or leaving a game plan with two people you trust, all these things that as modern humans we can do to help prevent our own death, um, you can do, thank God, you know, to get out of that situation or be rescued by a third party. I would like to also say that through the work of Dr. Batman Jelly, who's actually no longer with us, he, he talked about how hydration has really very little to do with thirst, that by the time we're thirsty, we're way dehydrated. And I want to know if you agree with that, Cody. I totally agree with that. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell my clients that thirst is never an indication of hydration. Okay, because you know as well as I do, when Kim's thirsty, she's probably going to go fill a coffee cup half full of water, if it's water, hopefully it's water, and drink it, and then you're not thirsty. Chug, 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 and you're not thirsty. Metabolically, what's going on is when the thirst indicator kicks in, and I don't trust it anyway, which we'll talk about here in a second, you're already a quart to a quart and a half low. So who in the hell out there do you know that when they're thirsty, they chug a quart to a quart and a half of water? One of them, and you're talking to him right now on the telephone. So that's one thing that I'll have to hammer into my students is, you know, thirst is never an indication of hydration. And because when the thirst is slaked and you're done drinking, you're still metabolically low on water. So we go back to pee. And I don't mean to be, have a potty mouth here, but urine, the clarity of your urine, once again, for your listeners, if you're peeing clear, the, the, just like the water should look that you're drinking, that's the way that your body lets you know metabolically that it has enough water in it. The two lesser indicators is you're peeing a lot, like, oh, my God, I just peed 20 minutes ago, and now I'm peeing again. And then the volume, oh, my God, I'm peeing a river. You know, but because... When you drink water in the mouth, uh, uh, down the, uh, the esophagus, into the stomach, past the pyloric sphincter valve, into the small intestine, into the large intestine, where most of it's absorbed in the large intestine, it's not in the stomach, you know, you can, I, I could have some other horrible stories involving diarrhea, which I won't get into because it would shock your engineer. Wait, can you, about, hold, can you hold one second? Can I just ask you this one question? Sorry to interrupt sure. you. I wanted to ask you about salt. Now, I know you've written about it, but, you know, we have such different science now about salt, not the table salt that they adulterate and ruin and they've taken out uh, the iodine in it and they've you know, bleached it. And I'm not talking about that. But what do you think about having salt, real salt, out in, in the desert, et cetera, to actually keep your electrolyte balance in? Are you familiar with that science? Or are you, you've been... Of course I am. Okay. Yeah, the sodium potassium balance. I mean, it's, it's life itself. The sodium potassium balance through the lipid membrane of the cell is, is basic functionality. That's how, that's how we do things. And um, that's a big question. And do I have my students? Let's put it this way. When I'm on a desert survival course, it's a base camp course. We're working our butts off, but, you know, we're, we're, it's, a, it's a con more of a controlled environment. And if I'm supplying the food, I will have some salty chips there or whatever. The body will typically let you know when it craves salt. The old salt tablets, the Bob Hope thing where he's wilting on the golf course, that was a bad idea from the start. Even the guy that invented those salt tablets realized, sorry, I made a mistake. Right. Um, but what about just courses, regular salt? Just just regular salt, like either Celtic sea salt or doesn't Himalayan? Matter. Okay. doesn't matter. Sodium is sodium is sodium. And so I know what you're saying. There's a lot of specialty salts out there. There's sure. a book yeah. I'm reading uh, called Salt. It's the history of salt in world history. Oh, I love be, I've heard of that book. I want to get yeah. that book, actually. I'm I hear it's great. It, but, I mean, salt was gold back in the day. I mean, because without it, you die. So let's let's back up here, and uh, where we, we, we've mentioned diarrhea, we've mentioned water, we're now talking about salt, and oh my God, you know. Um, so, but <laughs> salt is a biological necessity, just like water, or we're dead. Okay, you got to have salt. You have to have salt, and salt is always being lost uh, in various ways, but clearly through the sweat. That's why these big stinky guys, you know, have the crusted white armpits because there's a bunch of weird stuff that comes out besides <laughs> sodium, you know, with a big sweaty guy. So clearly someone in my country, um, I'm not in Phoenix, but I'm in hot country uh, compared to most of our nation, especially with the polar thing that's going on. People in hot environments are going to sweat more, so they're going to blow through more sodium. So they're going to need more sodium. 
a lot of people out there in survival land because now um, now it's really big, right? You know, so it's there's all these survival blogs now and survival people that you know still work at Home Depot or whatever they really do for a living. Um, with limited knowledge, they're now telling you how to operate on your own body in the basement. We need sodium. So while everyone's storing guns and bullets and whatever, and they can do what they want, not against self-defense, clearly, one of the best barter items that someone could have in a time of need is salt. And when you can go to the discount store and buy a 20 or 25-pound bag of this stuff for 3 to $5, we are in a very wealthy society. I'm into true value. And people don't know what true value is until they're down on their luck or they realize the grid's down or they're out with me on a remote field course and then they find out what's really important. And if you don't have or if someone doesn't have sodium and that became an issue um, because there's no salt mine in my area that I know about, that would be a wonderful barter item to have that stores indefinitely. That's very, very cheap. I mean, salt, salt will store in Definitely. So it's one of those cool things that an average family can, one, get and acquire, and two, store and store safely, and it's still not illegal, thank God, to store salt, um, that people need and that people will, will trade you stuff for. That's how important sodium is, just like water. I don't care what type it is, you know, as far as physiological survival. Um, it, it is what it is, sodium chloride, but it's very important um, do I have people take salt out in the field on purposely? No. We could go down the rabbit hole on more advanced courses I do where we literally lock, knock pieces of salt off old cowlicks that are out there in the wilderness. And you all, you know, you, it's, it's nasty to some, but they would crave salt. And so I know where to bootleg it in certain wilderness situations because the cattle need salt uh, as well. And so the ranchers will put salt licks out there and we've had to exploit those in times of need as well. In really hardcore, hot, hike-through-the-day uh, desert survival courses where that's the main intention of the course is to induce physiological and psychological stress rather than hang out at a base camp and learn desert survival skills. They're two separate things. I can knock your ass into the dirt on a course, or I can just take you out and you can eat your own bag lunch and I can teach you survival skills. Some people choose to just learn the skills. Some people choose to live the skills. I think that's a great distinction, and I get what you're saying. I really do get what you're saying. I would imagine being very nervous having you be my teacher on the land. Oh, come because, on. Because I'm not because you're not great, but because you'd I'd end up eating a rat with you, and I'd have to go <laughs> through some type of uh, hypnosis. I'd have to be laid down flat. Or something, but I will share something with you. I take my walks every day, and there's there was this dog that was tied to a wire for like a year, and she was getting beautiful husky, thinner and thinner and thinner to where I could see her ribs. And anyway, the guy ended up going to the hospital and said to me, could you find a home for her? So anyway, she's with me now. Her name is Danny. But one <laughs> of the things I noticed when I first started to feed her she had, like, voraciously attacked the food, like, as if she's never had food in her entire life. And I, it, all of a sudden, I had a glimpse watching Danny that this is just an example. This is like I could be that dog right now. You know what I'm saying? Having been starved for whatever, it would take a while for me to starve. Let's put it that way. But if something went down like it did a few years ago in Pasadena, we lost the electricity in three days. There was no electricity. Personally, I loved it. It was so beautiful, so serene, so calm, so peaceful. You could hear things. You could hear the birds. It was so quiet. And, of course, you don't have all that electromagnetic stuff pumping at you. But there was an X factor, Cody, as you know, on the road, which is that people get crazy. They were barnstorming as many stores as they could. They were buying up everything in sight. They were buying up batteries. I mean, I had a glimpse in three days what people could become, honking their horns, going crazy. And I live in an area which is not even like L.A. proper. It's much more relaxed. But in three days, people weren't so nice. They were stressed. They were, you know, it was like this horrible thing. I didn't think it was horrible. But 
What I'm saying is I got a glimpse in, in three days what could happen to people. And then when I looked at Danny, it was clear that that element, that primal thing called I haven't eaten in X amount of days or I don't know where we're going to get food again. It's one of the things I loved about your books is that they're so practical. I mean, everything you wrote in your books is very specific, very practical. This is the stuff that will keep your ass alive, as you say, and it's true. But I also had the sense of that whole side of people are responding on a primal level. You're not dealing with a poised, trained mindset of people settling in. You're dealing with the most voracious, instinctual, territorial people will turn into killers. And I just, I'm sharing with you just because after we did that interview a few years later, you know, I had a glimpse, just a glimpse into what it could all become. And I think it would be lovely if your books were required reading in school. I mean, I think children, I really feel that children, this would be great teaching for children. It should be in classes in school. I don't know what would be more important than this. Do you? No, I really don't. don't. And, you know, I don't know if I mentioned our, in our last interview, you know, I grew up around, of course, grandparents that went through the Depression, and I grew up around grandparents that used the Homestead Act of the 1860s. They grew up in the sod home, etc. So I was well-versed in, you know, Grandma, why, are you, why do you save all this stuff? And, and why is there canned food that you did yourself in the, in the root cellar, etc., etc.? <clears throat> and that's largely dying out. And and so I agree that when you have a culture that's quote unquote arguably one of the most advanced, at least technologically, on the planet, who doesn't know where to get water, food, or where to put their shit, that there's an issue with that. And I, I challenge anyone to debate me on that. <laughs> you know, this is common sense stuff. Back in my grandparents' time, it was common sense stuff. The problem is human physiology remains the same and you saw human psychology and if you want to jack with human psychology take a bunch of dumbasses that have forgotten where to put their poop when the grid goes down and you got a real problem and there's been a slow dumbing down over generations of being able to do more with less and self-reliance in general and I will and always will continue to try to battle against that by you know just a lot of this stuff is common sense and i just did a a, an interview with a guy for usa today who ironically is writing a a column under the travel section about common sense and where is it gone and he interviewed any any uh from a person like me to an airline stewardess you know to just people have uh wow if there was a gene pool uh it would be very full at this point in time (laughs) with dead people um, and who keep having babies. And I, I told him of various things about what I thought was going on, because, of course, with me, he wanted to focus on outdoor recreation. But I agree with you. Um, and But the beautiful thing about that is, you know, through this television show and through my courses, and, you know, I've been doing this a long time, <clears throat> there's a real interest in people wanting to be more self-reliant. And I probably hinted or said that to you four years ago um, because it really started to hit home, I think, for people with Katrina. Remember? Yes. And, of and then there was the recession. And, and this is not a political conversation, and staying alive is a nonpartisan issue. But I've noticed in my profession that people are more concerned slash interested in being more self-reliant. The concern part is good, but if it's just paranoia and we want to get the generator and live our, you know, gluttonous lives regardless, that's kind of a band-aid and that's not going to work very well and that person's going to be very miserable if the grid does burp for whatever reason. But there's a whole legion of people out there that are just want to simplify their life and want to get back to a garden and want to slow down a little bit. So I have a great hope, because that's my job, is to hold up hope that there will be those people and there will be those communities out there that have not forgotten these old skills. And, you know, when the bullets stop flying or whatever might happen, there will be pockets of people out there, like there always have been, that are sane, 
you know, that have learned how to do more with less, that haven't forgotten what their grandparents have told them, and will hopefully get us back on the right track. And they're increasing in numbers, Kim. They're increasing in numbers. You know, I get a lot of questions about my house, you know, which, as you know, is off-grid. You know, we want to do this, too, and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of it's not fear-based. A lot of it's they think it's really cool, and they're tired of paying bills, and they want to really pull back and get some self-control in their lives and not be led around like a little dog, according to them, or whatever their metaphor is. And that's good. Didn't you, know? you design your house so that it, it thermoregulates itself? Yes, ma'am. And you Explain I mean, you what that is. Thermoregulation. Yes, that's explain it. that about your house, because I think that's fascinating. What did you do? So what I did, the main factors I did, and I want to you know, throw out there right now that people don't have to have, I've been given a lot of flack about, you know, that I am really a hobbit, right? Because I go barefoot and I look, I, I live in the Shire. And I have a little house to live in the Shire. And, it, and you don't <laughs> have to have a house that looks like mine to achieve some regulation. So the three main qualities that I did is for our hemisphere, I placed it in the right direction. It's a passive solar home, so it's facing solar south in North America here. And I was liberal with the insulation, the dead airspace, and, of course, mine is, is underground, so I have thermal mass as well. And, and really quickly, um, without this being a huge physics uh, lecture, I have windows that face the right direction. And when it's cold outside in the wintertime, the sun's lower in the southern horizon. And because of something called an overhang on my house, which keeps out the hot sun during the summertime from hitting my floor. When the sun is lower, the sunlight goes to the windows, and that short irradiation soaks into my thermal mass, mass stone floor, and the, the floor soaks up all that nice warm sunshine. And then when the sun goes away at night, it re-radiates out that energy in the form of long-wave radiation, and it keeps my house nice and warm. And the insulation keeps all the nice and warm in and all the hot temperatures out. And, of course, the orientation allows the sun to come in my windows in the first place. So you could have a very conventional stick frame built home, stucco, whatever. You know, your, your Aunt Martha's right next door and you're in a, a, a CCR neighborhood that all the houses have to be painted, you know, gray or whatever it is. And you can still have these qualities, you know, if your architect and, and uh, general contractor know what the hell they're doing to uh, have, live a lot freer life, depending on what, where you are. In Seattle, Washington, maybe it's not the best idea to have a passive solar home, but you can sure as hell spend some extra money on insulation and not blow through as much, uh, you know, dug fur that you're burning your wood stove or whatever. Every environment on the planet has its ways to, in our culture, save money and be more comfortable. Back in the day, it was just staying alive and not being stupid. Now it's about saving money and being more comfortable. And it all revolves around common sense stuff that's been used for thousands of years by people all over the planet to to get it done, right? I mean, the Indian caves around here in the canyons in the southwest, they're not facing uh, uh, north. You know, they don't want their babies freezing their ass off in the wintertime. They're facing solar south. And they have an overhang that keeps out the hot summer sun, and it's poetry in motion. And it's based upon paying attention to the natural world, paying attention to the environment, because that's where your house is sitting. And if we have this mindset of plug it in and unplug it, and and we're not paying attention to the natural world where it's wet or dry or hot or cold, and we're miserable... You know, because we chose the view out the north, and we have a, a graded driveway, and we wonder why there's three foot of snow that lasts for eight months on our driveway. Well, we didn't think very well about where we put our house on the footprint of the planet. So what I really dig is turning people on to cooperating with nature and common sense and, and being freer. I don't have any bills, Kim, in my house for heating and cooling. I don't even burn wood. I let the sun come in my windows for free. I open and close windows in the summer when I need them, and that's it. And my house has a fairly temperate environment year-round. I don't have a power bill. I don't chop wood to heat it. I don't run a fan to cool it. Everything was thought about. It's not rocket science. It's been done for thousands of years. And, again, it's a kind of a cultural dumbing down 
of, you know, however you want to phrase it, about people that just are now getting excited again about these old world technologies and are doing something about it. And if we can push it through the codes and whatever else it takes, then, you know, we won't have to go right to someone else's country to get oil under the guise of something else. Cody, you know? Cody, can you stand by for just a moment? I want to take sure. a quick break, and I want to share with the audience about one of the companies that has sponsored this show. Sure. Yeah. Uh, stand by, please. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to turn your attention to a wonderful company called Essential Mother Earth at EssentialMotherEarth.com. You've heard me talk about them. The necklace I'm wearing is made of magnetite and hematite, and uh, you've heard me talk about how it can protect against uh, deadly radiation. And sometimes we get very carried away with all the technology, the cell phones, and just like Cody and I were talking about the grid, and, and you know, there's a lot of attention on how smart the grid is, and there's a new smart grid being put in, and what that really means is not that there's a smart grid being put in, it's that they're using microwave they're pulsing microwaves into our environments and through our biological systems. And so really the smart grid and a lot of things that we're calling smart that are coined smart are not too smart. They're actually deadly. And so one of the things I'd like to tell you is that one of the things that Cody says in his books is that you don't get to choose your emergency. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. But Essential Mother Earth has a variety of products. And one of them I'd like to turn your attention to is called the VM8 Vitality Mat. And uh, what it is, it's a proprietary technology, and they come in all these different colors. And basically, you can put it down, put your food on the mat for seven seconds or anything that you're drinking, and it neutralizes some of the damaging materials that are in your food and water. Now, some people would say, that's hard to believe. It's made of bamboo. How is it that that kind of a thing can happen? And what I want to tell you is that just the way NASA has created products for the astronauts to go out into outer space, just like Mylar bags were created, that's, that's, a, that's, that's something smart. It's actually something wise that can keep you warm. But there are technologies that truly are smart technologies that are good for you and good for your body. So I'd like you to look at the VM800 Vitality Mat. And also for those of you who would like to charge your water, we're finding out a lot about how magnetite can charge your water. You can also pour your water through magnetite and clean your water. And they have tons of wonderful products. They're a wonderful couple that runs the company. Go to EssentialMotherEarth.com and get yourself a Vitality Mat. Take a look at it. Give them a call. And we're coming back to the show with Cody Lundin. Cody. Yes. They have a great company. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about sacred simplicity, because this is a part of really what you're talking about. I love that you coined that word. One would think that sacredness is, you know, simplicity is inherent in it. But what do you mean by sacred simplicity? I coined that word? Well, I don't know. Well, I don't know. If you did, it's in your book. (laughs) It's in your book. I liked it. I thought it was beautiful. You know okay, what you let, mean, right? <laughs> let me, yeah, uh, well, that's, you know, I think uh, right off the bat, the less moving parts, the better, okay? In any, clearly, in any sort of wilderness emergency with gear or people freaking out or melting down or in an urban situation, the less moving parts something has, the less likely it is to fail, whether that's a plan or methodology or a teaching system or a car or a rocket ship, or whatever, whatever the hell it is. And I think if, if, if one looks at nature closely, although it's extremely complex, there's an inherent simplicity that nature is based on that works. And it's self-regenerating. It's self-sustaining. And we have not achieved that. And I think that there's a lot of secrets out there that are probably right in front of our face if people would calm down and and uh, notice what's really out there, and I've done this, okay, and that's, my house is based on a lot of good people I know with data from scientists about solar radiation hitting this certain part of the planet, but it's also a lot of time just paying attention to how nature works in my specific area. So I have a little slope on my land, and I know that water runs downhill. So my, if my pump ever goes out on another part, I have gravity feed into my house. It's irrelevant if my pump goes out because water runs downhill. 
um, I have a good solar location because the sun is solar south in this particular part of my land where I built my home. It's in a little valley that funnels the wind, and the scoop shape of my house allows the breeze to concentrate if I want it to when I open both doors, so it's self-ventilating. It's stuff like this. I mean, sacred simplicity, oh, yeah, that hippie or whatever, but, you know, this, this hippie, if you want to call me that, is saving a hell of a lot of money in non-utility bills because I've just followed nature. That's what I mean about that. You know, we're really good at screwing things up. We're really good at complexifying things and trying to sell stuff that really doesn't need to be sold. If you look in a camping store now and you looked at a camping store, if you could find one 25 years ago, you'd see a whole bunch of crap you don't need to go outside and enjoy the same wilderness area because a lot of it's marketing spin or sure, we're inventive and there's new ideas and wow, I need this piece of gear. That's not the way nature works. So there's a certain simplicity. And with the good fortune of doing a lot of traveling, I've seen this. You know, I've hung out in Zambia, in Africa, in the village where they're making their own blocks out of termite clay and, and making these cone-shaped shelters that they've done for centuries. Um, and it works. And ironically, just to, to piggyback on that story, they have a round house with a cone-shaped top. And there's a separate one for cooking, which should be obvious in lion country. And there's a separate one, you know, for living. And the government, in all its wisdom, came in and tried to recreate that. They recreated the shape, but they used galvanized sheet metal. So you've lost all the insulation of the thatch on top. You've lost all the insulation of the termite handmade adobe bricks, per se, and these were unlivable because they were like 160 degrees inside. Oh, my and God. You and couldn't, you couldn't even touch the sheet oh metal my God. because the metal was heating up from the sun and re-radiating that heat as, as long radiation inside. And they were cooking their own people. And they thought they were doing them a favor to get civilized and build these metal. Do you see what I mean? It's like a simple design can be screwed up by people with no field experience. And that's case in point. So guess what? All these shelters were torn down, complete waste of time, a complete waste of money, and they're all back to doing just what they were doing for generations, self-sustainable, self-sustaining, intelligent design. You know, our baby's not cooking. Have you, I, I want to ask you what I consider to be a tough question in the sense that I know that you have set up your home to be able to also collect rainwater, is that correct? Well, my home is more problematic. I collect rainwater, but I, I have grass on the roof. Okay. So I have another, I have a, a carport where I collect rainwater. It keeps stuff in the shade, my vehicles, because I'm in Arizona, and the sun bakes stuff. And yeah, that's totally equipped with rain catchment, and I catch thousands of gallons a year with are, that. Are you aware that they are, there are now state laws that, forbid people to catch rainwater? Of course I am. Yeah, and that's just another blasphemy that's going to have to change. I can't believe it. I just am so stunned. And do you know what, Cody? Do you know that in California, our governor has said that we're in a state of emergency with regard to drought and water? And do you know that that is true when it comes to rainfall, but it's not true when it comes to primary water or water that's not from rainfall? And so you and I live at a time where people are going to be told through the media that there are shortages of something that there's actually abundant resource of. And it's so painful as I read these articles. California is abundant with water, but the people in charge are not willing for the public to know about this other source of water. It's so painful. Can you imagine that? No, I don't live in that world. It's <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievably shocking. Uh, let's talk a little bit about having a neighborhood support group. You know, you talk, you give so many details about what people really need to do. What do we do with our neighborhood? What should we do? Talk a little bit about that because that's everything you write about is practical, but this is something that's really within people's reach. And I don't think when it comes to an emergency, people really are going to share food with each other, by the way. They may not even share water. I, I don't see that happening unless they're part of the same clan. 
Yeah, and that's what I know that's what you're talking about is the same plan. And there's two ways to look at that, and um, they both need to be looked at. Uh, let's say that you're in your neighborhood, living in your house or whatever, and you start the neighborhood block watch or whatnot, um, whatever you want to call it, and people are not on your same page. You've telegraphed at that point in time that, oh, uh, yeah, Kim must have a lot of stored food or whatever because she was trying to get us together to blah, 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 blah. You know, I know more than one person that they have no intention of being prepared and, and being a man or a woman and, and, and trying to to be responsible and get their own supplies. They're just going to take someone else's. And they've openly admitted that to me. So as far as a neighborhood response plan, your neighbors have to be on the same page. And how you get that message across without appearing like a, a paranoid doomsday freak right. is, is, is hard in this society. I think it... Uh, uh, so let's, you can either have people on the same page and communicate with your community um, if there's a power outage or whatever, and really we're being real practical. We're not talking about screaming zombies. You know, it's like if it happens all the time here when a monsoon storm takes out an electrical pole and all of a sudden we don't have power for a while. So it's a prudent thing. It's not a fear-based thing. It's common sense again. But then again, if the society doesn't really take it as such. Now... I know that I'm going to deviate from what you just asked, but the prepping movement is really big now. Right. And I don't know what I really think about that. I think I think it's good that people want to be prepared, but then there's a lot of prepping movements that it's really just, you know, a kind of a, a militia type thing in disguise. And it can get really weird when you're dealing with people that are scared, frankly, and have taken this out of proportion or have their own layer of ideology they want to lay onto it that can tweak the original intention of, you know, I just want my, you know, I just want to have enough to drink and enough to eat if the power goes out or whatever the motive is. It becomes a raison d'etre, really, rather than a, just a core part of your life that you take care of, you have. But actually, I think people do need to invest some time in, you know, like coming up with a plan, coming up with a couple plan, plan A, B, C, having whatever it is that, you know, people are called to have X amount of food and water. I, I mean, I remember even talking to my own family and saying, you know, per person, try to have at least 10 five-gallon bottles that are just stored at your house per person and for your children as well. And I remember I got, I mean, at the time I got to look like, you know, we're good, everything is okay, and we have a couple of bottles and it's good. But I seemed just on the water level kind of kooky, and I didn't even say it kooky. So I can imagine that you have to really be selfless when you talk to people and you can invite it. But, you know... It's such a fine balance between inviting people, talking about a potential emergency preparedness situation, but really who's going to prepare, who's going to have extra food, who's going to have several of the things that you mentioned like trash bags, a quart and gallon, uh, gallon-sized containers, food-grade freezer bags, and you know, good ones, duct tape, you know, these kinds of things. Who's really going to have basic preparedness and readiness, what is it? You think it'll be two out of 10, Cody? Two out of 10 people will do it? And then you and I are dealing with, and, and all of us who are getting, are just pre being prepared, and then again, as you say, you never get to pick your emergency. We don't know where we're going to be when anything happens. I even think people should carry water in their car because you can get stuck somewhere. I mean, I drive to the Mojave Desert or I drive up to Nevada or I drive to Arizona. Anything can happen. You don't control that either. And it can be really, really hot and you're there for hours. It can happen. Yeah. Something simple yeah. like that. Well, yeah. And we could go on and on and on and on. I mean, your original question is, is basically, how do I get my neighbors on the same page? Right. And, and I don't know. You either are open about it and in a non-threatening way, you know, uh, you start some sort of uh, organization or you don't. But um, the people that are uh, very open about that, again, in, when people are stressed out, you've, you, you've telegraphed what you have or even if you haven't said, I have X, Y, and Z, it's a real tough call. It's a real tough call, and I don't really have any advice other than uh, use common sense and try to read people the best you can 
And there's some neighborhoods where, you know, you just probably wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go around and talk to your neighbors and say, hey, I have this idea for whatever reason. And there's other communities that are inherently like that already, but they're usually smaller communities out in the sticks, you know. So, um, but there's been exceptions, and uh, Katrina was one of them. I, I know it was in the news several times when the feds dropped the ball on that or, you know, however someone would want to explain what happened, really, in, in that situation. A lot of the lower-income communities banded together and took care of their own, and they did it beautifully. Now, they were lower-income communities, which means they were used to talking with each other because they actually were a, a, a present within their neighborhood, and they did what the local law enforcement couldn't or wouldn't, etc. and that was all over AP releases in the news. So there can be some real beauty that comes out of adversity as well. Um, but I, but you're right. I mean, you saw what happened in your little land uh, for three days, and I know very well the mindset of people under stress. That's my business to know that. But if I just, it's 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 a hard thing for me to say because it can be very scary. You know, when you put people under under extreme stress, all you need to do is read about old survival stories. And the, the people rise up to the top, and and they and they celebrate life, and they do very very heroic things, or they just swim with scum, you know, and they go and do things that are pretty heinous, and and you know, you know, what would your dog do if it was hungry, you know, really, you know, so it, it's it's all over the map, and I wish that. And I think people are starting to wake up, but if we all just had some basic supplies and a basic mindset to deal with adversity and to get some balls back in our country, our country was founded, you know, from breaking away from these people that it wasn't working for us anymore. And I grew up with homesteading grandparents, like I said, so there's a certain amount of dare I say it, personal responsibility, whoops, sorry to cuss again on your show, Kim. That's okay. That pe- people have to take personal responsibility. And if they're not willing to do that, then there's the gene pool thing. Because if you're not willing to put on a coat when you go outside in the wintertime and you're not acclimated, you risk death, and that's that person's fault. So that's another problem, too, is accountability, personal responsibility, and how do you teach that? One of it's through adversity. I get a lot of emails from people that have been in scary situations, and a lot of them in town, with or just, wow, Cody, we didn't have power for 13 days. And usually they always say, we had a blast. It was slowed down. I got to talk to my kids. We melted snow. Other people were freaking out and spinning around. But after that, Cody... We now have X, Y, and Z in our cellar because it just takes one time, Kim, to get slapped upside the head and you realize, my God, I'm just as vulnerable as anyone else. And and sometimes those are good wake-up calls. The bad ones are when you end up dead. Absolutely. Can you, before we, uh, before you and I adjourn, can you talk a little bit about search and rescue and just contextualize for the audience about how... After three days, the the chance of them being found plummets to 3%. And a little bit about search and rescue. I don't feel that they get enough, how do you say, airtime and, and gratitude, really. Talk yeah. a little bit oh. about them. Okay, SAR, of course, the acronym for search and rescue. And there are two different disciplines. One is the searchers. They're people trained to locate you because they don't know where you are. And the other are the rescuers and they work hand-in-hand, but they're two separate disciplines that should be understood. Ideally, you want to say the hell with the search and go right on to the rescue, right? So what you might do before you go hiking, as an example, is leave a 5W game plan, and we talked about that probably, or at least I did in both the books. Hey, we're going to this location. I'm going with Steve and Bob and Joanne. We're driving the black Jeep. Uh, We'll be back Sunday at 6 p.m., you have all these details, what, when, why, how, etc. Um, and you give that to two people you care about, that care about you, and they call search and rescue. So if you went out to Granite Mountain on Saturday and were supposed to come back at Sunday at 6 o'clock, 
those two people with the information you gave them call search and rescue and in my state it's dealt with the sheriff of each county runs search and rescue it's going to be different in different states then they come out and pick me up and if you've done your homework with the location you said you were going to be at it should be a matter of literally just just rescuing you right because they don't have to search for you the problem is when they don't know where the hell you are so the first thing your listeners can do whether it's in town or whatever the situation is you leave a written game plan with two people that care that if you're live if you're alive or dead so they can call the authorities in this case being search and rescue and how they work is varied. There's ground crews, there's scuba crews, there's fixed-wing aircraft, there's helicopter crews, there's the sniffing dogs, there's the cadaver dogs, which you don't want to come out and look for you because that means you're looking for your dead body. It depends on the topography and your state rules. My state has the most diversity and the shortest drive time from the canyons, the mountains, to whatever, but California, is, is you have the most diversity, period, because you have the coast as well. So your search and rescue teams would be versed in high-angle rescue. They'd be versed in swift water rescue. They'd be versed in desert stuff, mountain stuff, snow stuff, all sorts of stuff, because California is a big palette to play in. And that's how it works. So these are people that are, it's a third-party rescue, but they need to know that you're missing, for one, and they need to know where you are, ideally. And there's a bunch of little gadgets and gadgets on the market, personal locator beacons and whatever, that have saved a lot of lives. But really, you know, again, if you want to trust all the babies to a mechanical thing you put in your pocket, then you can maybe join the gene pool, although they have saved lives. But I illustrate that in detail in both those books about leaving this written list, and that's your lifeline, right? Because someone else knows you're out there in the woods or the deserts, and if you don't come back when you say you're going to come back, then you have that second chance for someone to come pick you up. And also, didn't you say leave a, did you say a, some type of a map for people too, right? Ideally, yeah, that would be the location. What I do as far as where I'm going is I'll leave a bullet list in words, and then you might copy a 7.5-minute topographical map or just do a handmade map. You know, I'm driving down this road and hit it with a highlighter and call it good. I do both because, you know, you don't want to assume that SAR, I just, it's just a double backup, and I'm worth it. My life is worth it, you know, and it just takes a few minutes to do it. But, Kim, if no one knows you're out there or where you are, they find skeletons all the time here. There was another young man. And that takes uh, and, a long time to become a skeleton, doesn't it? Uh, it depends on where you are okay. and how hungry the critters <laughs> are, you know. But they, there's, uh, it happens all the time where hunters will run across a human skeleton and they'll do a, a dental identification. They'll find out, well, yeah, that was old Frank Smith that was out hunting and you know, I don't know, 2006, and they finally find the body. One last thing about SAR, and it's kind of uh, morbid, but it's true. It also allows that if, if someone did die out in the wilderness, if SAR can at least retrieve your body, that's a lot easier on your loved ones. Because you can imagine what it's like to have a loved one who just disappeared and you never know really what happened to them. It's very, very hard for emotional closure for your family members um, if they don't find the body. So if nothing else, have them retrieve your corpse, as morbid as it sounds, because it'll be a lot less grief in the long run when your people, uh, your family can have a proper funeral, a proper ritual, a proper burial, cremation, whatever your thing is, to achieve some closure. Wow. Beautiful. Listen, Cody, I'd like people to know about your book. I'm going to put up your book, 98.6, The Art of Keeping Your Ass Alive, How to Survive Fear, Panic, and the Biggest Outdoor Killers. That is the book you want to have and read. And as Cody says, you don't want to be reading this when you need it. And the other book is When All Hell Breaks Loose, Stuff You Need to Survive When Disaster Strikes. That's his other book. I think these should be discussed among families and that this is the most important stuff really of the modern day. And one of the other things I like about your work, Cody, is that you blend the ancient and the modern traditions. You're willing to work with technology and you're willing to stay true to the ancient traditions. I love that about you. I love the work that you're doing and the contribution you're making. And most importantly, the way that you're stewarding this survival uh, 
calling and preparedness calling with no fear, but with wisdom. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me again. Stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who have enjoyed the show, you can go to Cody Lundin's website at Cody, C-O-D-Y, Lundin, L-U-N-D-I-N.com. You can also watch him on the Discovery Channel on Dual Survival, and you can pick up his books. And for those of you that enjoy It's Rainmaking Time, please share it with your loved ones, your friends, your family members. Like us on Facebook. Share us on YouTube. We're also on iTunes on the It's Rainmaking Time store, although these segments are free. And this particular segment will be in both an audio and a video feed. It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you so much, Cody. Hey, thank you, Kim.